Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? What are some things standing in the way of being the best version of you? For a lot of people, life, your past, and sometimes your current situation can cause roadblocks in your life. Mental health is incredibly important, and so many, including myself, can benefit from talking to a professional and working to dismantle those roadblocks. That's why I'm excited to talk to you guys about BetterHelp. BetterHelp knows no two people are the same and will help to assess your personal needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. These incredibly convenient appointments are in a safe and completely private online environment, and you can start chatting with your new therapist in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can message with your counselor at any time and get a timely response, plus schedule weekly video or phone sessions, which means no driving to an office, no waiting rooms, and no awkward small talk. Just meaningful sessions with experts who specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, family conflict, LGBTQ matters, grief, and so much more. There is truly someone there for everyone. And BetterHelp is committed to finding your perfect match, which means if you and your counselor don't mesh for whatever reason, they make it easy and free to seek someone new if needed. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. 
And with financial aid available and access worldwide, they truly make it easy for anyone to seek the help they need. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash morning cup. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Yeah, the scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Cop of murder. Are you ready for a heavy hitter? A man whose crimes were fast and brutal and has since become one of the most widely spoken about serial killers of our time? Are you ready to hear about the man born June 1st, 1953? Are you ready to hear about David Berkowitz? So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. David Berkowitz, born Richard David Falco on June 1st, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York, was the product of an affair his mother was having with a married man. He was given away shortly after his birth, and, though it was never confirmed, writers have surmised that she did so because the man threatened to abandon her if she kept the baby he secretly fathered. He was adopted by Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz, a modest Jewish-American couple who worked at a hardware store and desperately wanted a baby. According to those who have dedicated their lives to studying the future serial killer, his childhood was a troubled one. He lost interest in school pretty early on and became infatuated with petty larceny and arson. He was difficult, spoiled, and known to be a bully, and despite being sent to a number of psychotherapists, his behavior never seemed to improve, nor did it result in any legal action, so it simply continued and escalated. When he was 14 years old, his mother died of breast cancer, and when his father remarried a woman that he disapproved of, David's home life became strained, which might explain why he joined the U.S. Army straight after graduation when he was just 17 years old. He served until his honorable discharge three years later in 1974 and decided he wanted to find out more about his birth mother, Betty. He visited her a few times before she disclosed the details of her pregnancy, and the idea that he was born from an affair left David distraught, specifically with the two father figures in his life who seemed reluctant to care for him. This discovery and his adoption became, as anthropologists would later call it, the primary crisis of his life, leading to a shattered sense of identity that he couldn't quite seem to shake for the rest of his life. He stopped communication with Betty and attempted to start college. But after just a year of attending, he left and went to work as a driver for a Bronx taxi service and hold several other menial jobs over the course of the next year, all while escalating to what police would soon call the 44 caliber killer, and later, Son of Sam. David Berkowitz would later claim that his first attack took place on Christmas Eve of 1975, when he was just 22 years old, when he used a hunting knife to stab two women in Co-op City. One of the women was never identified, but the other was 15-year-old Michelle Foreman, who was attacked on a bridge, seriously injured, and hospitalized for seven days. Like with his childhood antics, David was never suspected of the crimes, therefore never punished, but did relocate to an apartment in Yonkers about 20 minutes away from the scene of the crime. Fully ready to escalate his crimes yet again, David took the life of his first victim on July 29, 1976, 
when he shot 18-year-old Donna Laurie, an emergency medical technician, and her 19-year-old friend and nurse, Jody Valenti, as they were sitting double-part discussing their evening at a local discotheque. Donna had opened her car door only to see a man rushing towards her. The man then pulled out a pistol, crouched and braced one elbow on his knee, using it to steady his arm. He fired one shot and hit Donna, killing her instantly. He then shifted his aim towards Jody and shot her thigh before walking swiftly away from the scene. Jody Valenti was able to survive her injuries and relayed to the police that this man was a complete stranger, white, in his 30s, about 5'9 and weighing 160 pounds, with dark, short, curly hair. A man Donna's father and other neighbors said was seen sitting in a yellow compact car nearby before the attack. On October 23, 1976, David struck again in Flushing's Queens when he shot and killed 20-year-old security guard Carl DeNaro and 18-year-old college student Rosemary Keenan. The pair were sitting in Rosemary's car when the window shattered, Carl later saying he thought the car had exploded with them inside. Rosemary was able to start the car and quickly speed away, but it wasn't until they slowed down that they realized that not only were they being shot at, but that Carl had a bullet wound to his head. They had thought it was simply a cut from the shattered glass. Thankfully, both were able to survive the attack, though Carl did need a metal plate to replace a portion of his skull. Neither saw the man who shot at them. At the time of the attack, Carl had shoulder-length hair, leading many to speculate that he was mistaken for a woman by the killer. Rosemary's father was a 20-year-old veteran of the New York City police, and because of this, his colleagues jumped on the case and almost immediately began a pretty intense investigation into the crimes. Though there were striking similarities between the two cases, the two shootings weren't connected initially, because they happened in two separate boroughs and were investigated by two separate precincts. It wasn't until David struck again that police started to consider an attempted serial killer may possibly be in their city. On November 27, 1976, a little over a month after Carl and Rosemary's attack, 16-year-old Donna DeMassey and 18-year-old Joanne Lumino were walking home from a movie just after midnight when they decided to stop on Joanne's porch and finish their conversation. That's when a man dressed in military fatigues approached them and asked them for directions in a high-pitched voice. Before he could get the whole request out, he pulled out a revolver and shot each of the girls once, and when they fell to the ground, shot several more times into the air, hitting the apartment building and running off. Donna suffered from a wound to her neck while Joanne was hit in the back. Both girls survived, but Joanne was rendered a paraplegic. On January 30th, 1977, 26-year-old Christine Frund and her 30-year-old fiancé, John Dial, were sitting in John's car about to head to a dance hall for the evening. Three shots flew through their car and, in a panic, John threw the car into drive and sped off to look for help. He suffered only minor injuries, but Christine was shot twice and died several hours later. Like in the previous attack, they did not see the man who shot at them. It was at this point the police couldn't ignore the similarities in the shootings, especially since all were shot with a 44 caliber bullet and the attacker seemed to target young women with long, dark hair. Composite sketches were released, but at this point, because of the differing descriptions, 
police theorized that they were actually looking for two separate shooters, possibly partners. On June 8, 1977, 19-year-old Virginia Voskarkayan was walking home from Columbia University when she was confronted by an armed stranger just a block away from where Christine Freund had been shot. Thinking quickly, Virginia lifted up her textbooks to defend herself, but the shooter simply shifted his arm and struck her in the head, killing her instantly. Two days later, the NYPD held a press conference in which they revealed that the same 44 caliber Bulldog revolver had killed both Donna Loria and Virginia. And it was at this point that the media became immersed in all things 44 caliber killer. On April 17, 1977, 20-year-old tow truck driver Alexander Issa and 18-year-old aspiring actress Valentina Suriani were sitting in Valentina's car near her Bronx home, just a few blocks from the Donna Loria and Jody Valenti shooting, when each was shot twice, Valentina dying at the scene and Alexander in the hospital hours later. But this time, there was a small but very significant difference between this crime and all of the others. A letter. Next to the bodies of Alexander and Valentina was a handwritten letter written mostly in block capitals addressed to the NYPD captain, Joseph Borelli. In the letter, David used the name Son of Sam, therefore changing it from the media-dubbed 44 caliber killer and taunting the police for their fruitless investigation. In it, he said things like, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. And Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill Command's father, Sam. He claimed that he was programmed to kill and that the only way they would stop him would be if they killed him. The letter was sent to several medical professionals who profiled that the writer was more than likely suffering from paranoid schizophrenia and believed himself to be a victim of demonic possession. Then on May 30th, 1977, Daily News columnist Jimmy Breslin got a letter of his own postmarked the same day in Inglewood, New Jersey. In this letter, Son of Sam said, JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad and won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. This letter seemed much more ominous than the last. This one not only promised another attack, but went on to give a specific date, July 29th, the anniversary of the first 44 caliber shooting. He, of course, notified the police who thought the letter was the real deal written by their killer. Because of the unique handwriting, police started to question staff members of DC Comics, asking if they recognized the handwriting, thinking the killer may have been a comic letterer. While they did this, the New York Daily News published the letter, withholding some pieces, and Jimmy himself urged the killer to turn himself in in what would become the highest-selling edition of the Daily News to date, with 1.1 million copies sold. Thousands of tips came through to the police, and women all over New York cut and dyed their hair or wore wig to avoid being Son of Sam's next victim. 
So many were purchased that beauty supply stores all over New York completely ran out. On June 26, 1977, 20-year-old Sal Lupo and 17-year-old recent graduate Judy Placido left a Queens discotheque and were sitting in Sal's car when they heard three gunshots enter the vehicle. Only Sal's right forearm was injured, but Judy was shot in the temple, shoulder, and the back of the neck, though she was somehow able to survive her intense injuries, and told police that just before the shooting started, the pair had been discussing the son of Sam case. As the anniversary of the first shooting was fast approaching, the entire city sat with bated breath, waiting for the promised killing. However, the next and final murder would take place in Brooklyn a few days later. On July 31st, 1977, 20-year-old Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante were in Robert's car parked under a streetlight kissing when a man approached the car and fired four rounds inside. Both were shot in the head before the assailant fled into a nearby park, with Robert losing his eye and Stacy, the only blonde victim of Son of Sam, dying from her injuries. That same night, Detective John Falatico was called at his home and told he had two weeks to solve Robert and Stacy's case before it was turned over to the Son of Sam Task Force, which at this point had launched the biggest police manhunt in the history of New York City. It was at this point that a witness came forward and said that she had some information about the latest killing. According to Cecilia Davis, she was walking her dog on the day of the shooting when she saw a patrol officer ticketing a car that was parked near a fire hydrant. Moments later, the car's owner walked past her and gave her a prolonged look that left her feeling worried. She ran home to get away, but moments later, heard the gunshots. It took her four days to contact the police, but with the information she gave, they looked into every car that had been ticketed in the area on the night of the murder. When they did they found that a 1970 four-door yellow Ford Galaxy had been among the list. On August 9, 1977, an NYPD detective called Yonkers Police and asked them to schedule an interview with the car's owner, David Berkowitz, a man who was already on the Yonkers Police Department's list of suspicious characters after connecting him to some strange local crimes that they saw referred to in one of the Son of Sam letters even telling the New York City detective that they believed he was the son of Sam. On August 10, 1977, police investigated David's car as it was parked on the street outside of his apartment. Inside, they found a rifle and a duffel bag filled with ammunition, maps of the crime scenes, and a threatening letter addressed to an inspector on the task force. At this point, there was very little denying that this was their serial killer. Rather than risk a violent encounter inside the building's narrow hallways, police decided to wait for David to leave the apartment, which he did at around 10 p.m. When Detective John Felatico go approached the driver's side of the car and pointed his gun towards David, the 44 caliber Bulldog revolver was sitting right next to him. David looked at the detective and responded flatly, Well, you got me. When police went on to search his apartment, they found it in complete disarray. Satanic graffiti on the walls, diaries filled with all his inner thoughts since he was 21 years old, and three stenographer's notebooks almost completely filled with meticulous notes about over 1,400 arsons that he had committed all over New York City. 
He was interrogated at the station on April 11th, 1977, where he immediately confessed to the son of Sam attacks and said that he was ready to plead guilty to whatever charges he got. When asked why he did it, David calmly explained that his neighbor, Sam Carr's dog Harvey, was possessed by an ancient demon demanding the blood of pretty girls, and that the Sam he mentioned in the first letter was Sam Carr. Something interesting to note, the Yonkers police dispatcher who took the call from the NYPD about David was Wheat Carr, Sam's daughter. Years later, David would publicly declare that the claims of demonic possession were a hoax, that he long contemplated murder to get revenge on a world he thought rejected him and used the possession as a way to gain some more notoriety. After being deemed competent to stand trial, David's lawyers advised him to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, and he refused. He appeared in court on May 8, 1978, and pled guilty to all of the charges against him, just like he said. Two weeks later, David attempted to jump out of the window of the seventh floor of the courtroom while chanting, Stacy was a whore, and I'd kill her again, I'd kill them all again. He was restrained, and the media went wild and David cemented his celebrity status. Because of this stunt, the court ordered yet another psychiatric examination before the sentencing could proceed. During this evaluation, David, after writing, I am not well, not well at all, on a sketch, was deemed competent yet again. On June 12, 1978, David Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 years to life for each murder to be served consecutively at Attica Correctional Facility. Because of his guilty plea, he was eligible for parole after serving 25 years. While sitting behind bars, David worked with a group of evangelical Christians on his own personal memoirs. Realizing that his celebrity would make this book a big success, the New York State Legislature enacted new statutes to keep him and other criminals from financially profiting off the publicity of their crimes, referred to now as the Son of Sam Laws. In 1979, David mailed a book about witchcraft to police in North Dakota, taking credit for the murder of Arliss Perry, a case we covered on October 12, 2020, and, after his admission to a Sullivan prison, claimed he joined a satanic cult in the spring of 1975. But in 1987, David claimed he changed his ways when he became an evangelical Christian, changing his name from Son of Sam to Son of Hope. Years later, he would claim that Son of Sam only took the lives of three of the victims, Donna Loria, Alexander Esau, and Valentina Suriani, and that it was several of his fellow cult members that committed all of the others. But of course, he could not divulge the names of all these other men and women. He did, however, name two of the cult members, John and Michael Carr, sons of the dog owner, Sam Carr, even claiming that's where the name Son of Sam came from. These men were long dead, John killed by a shooting that was dubbed a suicide, and Michael in a car accident. So, of course, these stories could never be corroborated. Now, while some see this as a last-ditch effort to place blame on others, many doubted David could have committed all of these shootings on his own. This theory isn't shared by everyone, with famed FBI profiler John Douglas saying that, after many interviews with David, he was certain he committed the murders on his own that he wasn't capable of being involved in group activities. David Berkowitz is entitled to a parole hearing every two years as mandated by state law. 
he has consistently refused to ask for release and sometimes skips the hearings altogether. He believes that he belongs in prison for the rest of his life and wishes to stay there. His last hearing was scheduled for May 2020. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on June 2nd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.